welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Park. Let the word go forth from this time and place to friend and foe alike that the torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans born in this century, tempered by war, disciplined by a hard and bitter peace, proud of our ancient heritage, and unwilling to witness or permit the slow undoing of those human rights to which this nation has always been committed and to which we are committed today at home and around the world. Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. This is Scott Parkin in Berkeley, California. And you may have guessed that was the inaugural speech of John Fitzgerald Kennedy on January 20th, 1960. And today in our episode, we are going to be talking about uh, John F. Kennedy Uh, This is the 60th anniversary of the election of JFK. He has influenced at least three generations of politicians, including Gary Hart, Bill Clinton, John Kerry, uh, one of our favorites, Diamond Joe Quimby, uh, Barack Obama, and most recently, Joe Biden. Uh, The other interesting thing to note is that uh, Joe Biden is also the second Catholic president, and John F. Kennedy was the first Catholic president. So it's an important sort of milestone uh, to be talking about Kennedy's 60th, the, the 60th anniversary of Kennedy's election and becoming president. The other kind of important anniversary that we'll touch on today as well is that actually on Sunday, December 20th, was the is the 29th anniversary of the release of the film, the Oliver Stone film JFK, which we actually have a lot of uh, uh, things to say because we actually have a lot of disagreement with it. That film is a is a is a, a rare occasion of where pop culture has actually influenced historical scholarship. And we're going to talk about that and disprove actually some of what's talked about in the film. But like most importantly, JFK is seen as historically as a figure of the left, which he wasn't, and we're going to talk about that. And I'm here in Berkeley, California. And today, as always, I'm joined by Bob Bazanko. And um yeah, if there were a Mount Rushmore for the Democrats for the liberals, I you know JFK would definitely be on it. And I think he and, and Richard Nixon probably more than anyone kind of uh, characterized that past, the second half of the 20th century politically. And, you know, Kennedy was kind of fading, but I think Biden's victory kind of, in a sense, brings it back. This is kind of the last gasp, I guess, of Kennedyism because Biden is so old and kind of grew up in that era. He was born in, what, 1942, I think. So clearly of that generation. Um, but before we get going, I, I you know, I, I always want to thank all of you out there who uh listen to us and who uh watch on youtube and you know uh and i always uh ask a favor of you which is very simple and pain pain free and it doesn't cost you anything which is um to please hit your share button or retweet it or, or whatever you know we've often you know made kind of jokes about we're not part of that kind of brooklyn lefty landscape and you know, uh, again, this week, there's been kind of a, a social media firestorm or shitstorm, more appropriately, where various lefty groups are kind of going at each other and Jimmy Dore and Chapo and Jacobin and Crystal Ball and the Young Turks. And I really don't know much about all of them, but I want to point out, and this is something that Scott and I have 
talked about this was the, the basis when we started doing this was that we don't just kind of gossip and, and talk to each other. Um, the two things we, we really, I think, stress are shows like today's, which talk about radical history, which is you know really important for people to know, especially to know the truth, like the truth about JFK. But also, I think that the really guiding you know, principle of, of what we do here is to have on activists, not people who are just trying to like, you know, get you to vote for Bernie Sanders or bitch about AOC or, you know, that kind of thing. We have on people, you know, Scott Crow and Lisa Fithian and Shane Burley and people who are doing mutual aid in New Orleans and who have been in the streets of Portland and who are, you know, all over the place actually doing stuff. And And we really take pride in that. We are you know, we're not part of that debate. Frankly, those people don't know who we are. We're too small and insignificant. And, you know, we're, we're way too west of uh, Fort, uh, you know, Fort Greene. So, uh, uh, but please, you know, whatever you can do, if, if all of you share it and one person watches it, we've doubled, you know, which is, would be awesome. So thanks again for your support. And, um, you know, uh, glad you like it. We're getting, and, and actually today, Scott, this is our first viewer, listener inspired show. Uh, uh, Mexican educator, which is a Twitter, his Twitter handle, I think, uh, who was a student of mine, which I did not know many years ago, sent us a, a message on it, which see, you can, you can be responding. You can be like an executive producer for a show. Uh, send us a Twitter, be a Twitter, be a Twitter, be a Twitter, send us a message saying, you know, Hey, why don't you guys do a show on this? And that made it easy. Cause we were trying to figure out what to do. So, um, want to thank uh, him out there. I forget what his actual Twitter handle is. But uh, um, thank you very much. So uh, without further ado, Scott, you want to kind of. Yeah, I just want to touch on one other thing. It's also end of the year, folks. And so uh, besides sharing all of our episodes, the other thing you can do to support us is actually make a donation to Green and Red podcast. You can go to our website, greenandred.org. And it's like backslash support or backslash donate. I forget which, but it's on the front page of the website. Even if it's $5, if it's $50, if it's $500, we actually had a donation this week from a very generous supporter who gave us $2,000. And so uh, that is rare. That is like the a first in a green and red history, actually. Uh, but we would like really encourage all of our friends out there who are small donors to give. And if you can't give, then definitely like give the gift of tweeting and sharing our episodes because we put a good bit of work in this and we're very proud of it. And we, the only thing we really, really want to do is like be able to help all of you build a stronger movement and we feel like with the people we talk to and with the episodes that we that we host with ourselves it's a it's an important contribution to building a more fierce movement so without further ado we're going to talk a little bit and do a little bit of uh what i would like to i've been calling all week as we've been prepped in this episode myth busting of uh of john f kennedy uh and we're going to talk about uh kennedy and and the kennedys and joe mccarthy and their relationship we're going to talk about Kennedy's record on civil rights. We're going to talk about JFK and Cuba, and then we're going to talk about JFK and Vietnam. Um, and so I'm going to start off with uh, just talking a little bit about Kennedy and McCarthy. Uh, I'm just going to kind of throw out some facts out there and 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 kind of pull it together a little bit. Is a, a kind of important thing that people actually don't realize is that, that Joseph McCarthy, and when I'm talking about Joseph McCarthy, I'm talking about the junior senator from Wisconsin who is most known for propagating the Red, a red Scare. Uh, there were multiple Red Scares in the 20th century, and he was responsible for one, probably the most known one, which was in like late 40s up into the mid 50s. His legacy is what we call McCarthyism, which is actually a, a fairly iconic term about where you like bait people, red bait um, around left politics. And 
try to destroy people's lives and careers through that. He's also was known as a as a member, or was he actually the chair of the of the House on American Committees House House on um, American no, Activities uh, Committee? No, uh, that was Martin Dees from Texas, yeah. actually from outside Houston. Yeah, but uh, uh, McCarthy started kind of as on his own. That was how he made a name for himself. Tailgunner Joe, he claimed to be a pilot, and then he said, "I have in my hand a list of you know a list of whatever two hundred fifty names and uh, an alcoholic, morphine addict, great guy." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, real, real figure to, to, you know, look up to. Um, and so, you know, but, but the Kennedys actually did, uh, Joseph, Joseph Kennedy, the father of the patriarch of the Kennedy clan, befriended McCarthy and found him to be a very likable fellow, fellow Irish Catholic. Uh, and he also likes his ideas on the domestic communist menace. Uh, and this, these feelings quickly transferred to the entire Kennedy clan, uh, JFK himself, when he was in the House and then in the Senate, actually liked that McCarthy went after elites in the State Department. Uh, what Bob said before about, you know, McCarthy saying that he had a list of 200 names of, of known communists, he actually was talking about in the State Department, in, you know, in different departments in the, in the, in the federal government. And JFK, who, when he was in Congress, aligned himself with militant anti-communists, they actually, uh, he was part of a, a of people in Congress who had blamed the Truman State Department for the loss of China. Uh, and so, or, and, and there's like congressional record of that where JFK declared that on the House floor in January, 1949. Uh, and when he said that, he said, the responsibility for the failure of our foreign policy in the Far East rests squarely with the White House and the Department of State. But besides that, there are also like kind of deep personal bonds between JFK and McCarthy. Uh, McCarthy actually, you know, was at the peak of his power in the like 1952, 1953. And he had actually was a, a frequent guest at the Kennedy compound in Hyannis. And he actually is known to have dated uh, two of the Kennedy sisters. First Eunice, who's the mother of Maria Shriver, who's the former uh, wife of, of Arnold Schwarzenegger, the governor of my state. And then later Pat Kennedy, who uh, later married uh, actor Peter Lawford. Uh, McCarthy was even invited to the wedding reception for Eunice and Sergeant Shriver, and even presented Eunice with a silver cigarette case inscribed to Eunice and Bob from the one who lost. Creepy. <laughs> very, very creepy. But like we said, alcoholic, morphine addict. Not that we have a problem with addicts. You know, we're actually very supportive of people going through that. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're less, we get less excited about fervent anti-communists on a power trip, like, you know, Joe McCarthy. Um, and then there was also a, a, a pretty- or, or a certain Adderall addict in Washington, D.C. Or a certain Adderall addict in Washington, D.C. Uh, yeah, we could talk a lot. We, we've, you've heard us talk about him for hours. Uh, <laughs> the, other, the other Kennedy who actually, uh, you know, had a lot of uh, love and affection for Joe McCarthy was Bobby Kennedy. Uh, one of Bobby Kennedy's first jobs was actually as a, a counsel on a congressional staff in which McCarthy was on. Kennedy actually uh, clashed with Roy Cohn, who uh, was uh, one of McCarthy's top lieutenants, uh, because it turned out that Cohn had subpoenaed the wrong person, Annie Lee Moss, uh, before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, and I didn't say this, actually, Kennedy was a, a counsel on HUAC, on the House Un-American Activities Committee. Kennedy and uh, Cohn were kind of the two lead lawyers, and yeah. Bobby Kennedy kind of skates on that, but he was McCarthy's Roy Cohn, along with Roy Cohn. Cohn. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, 
yeah, because Kennedy became known for other things lately, or later, he uh, was able to sort of escape the derision and, and bad reputation that Cohen had. Um, but uh, RFK, because he also was a, you know, a, a stealthy, knife-fighting uh, bureaucrat, uh, he actually, you know, embarrassed Cohn because he actually had revealed that Cohn had made that mistake when he had subpoenaed the wrong person. And Cohn resented him for that for the rest of his, uh, rest of their lives. And then the other kind of interesting uh, tidbit, personal tidbit, is that Joe McCarthy was actually godfather to Kennedy's, Joe, Robert Kennedy's first child, Kathleen. Um, and so I, it's just like a kind of important flag is that like these deep personal connections between the Kennedy clan and, and McCarthy actually went pretty deep. And, and when we look back at the, even the history is like McCarthy is seen reviled as a villain in American history. And like, you know, McCarthyism is a, is a, is a term that, you know, doesn't mean a good thing where Kennedy is seen as this sort of like transformational figure in American history. It's like it kind of a very important thing to kind of, to, to flag. Um, the last thing I'll say about the Kennedys and McCarthy is that Jack Kennedy, when McCarthy, um, we could actually say that his poll numbers began to go down uh, after he'd kind of reached his height to kind of put it in like uh, in, in common terms uh, or modern terms. And, and so like JFK very much began to move away from, uh, you know, over public support of McCarthy. Um, and he was, you know, Kennedy in 1952 had got, gone from the House to the Senate um, when JFK challenged Henry Cabot Lodge, who was a Republican who ran for the Republican Senate seat in Massachusetts. McCarthy privately supported JFK. But as McCarthy's stock began to crash, Kennedy began to move away from him. And so there was actually a debate around the censuring of uh, Joseph McCarthy and JFK just happened to be uh, absent that day. He, you know, it's pretty well known that Kennedy suffered from like, you know, back pain, but it was actually happened to be a day where he was recuperating from some of his, from back surgery. Um, but it's like a kind of like really important thing to note is that like Kennedy actually, even when it was time to censure, McCarthy, and it was the popular thing to do, especially amongst Democrats, Kennedy tried to step away from that. And he actually had, he, he voted for like a very limited part of the censure. Uh, he's quoted as saying, is the issue involves neither the motives nor the sincerity of the junior senator from Wisconsin. Many times I have voted with Senator McCarthy for the full appropriation of funds for his committee for his amendment to reduce our assistance to nations trading with communists and on other matters. I have not sought to end his investigations of communist subversion, nor is the pending measure related to either the desirability or the continuation of these investigations. It's, it, it's just like a, a kind of really important thing. I mean, I think Bob and I would agree that like, there's, there's something to be said for loyalty, but I, there's actually something to be said for loyalty for like, you know, militant anti-communist red baiting uh, pieces of garbage. So yeah, I mean, there's there's Sicilian loyalty, but once you're a rat, then you know you lose that immunity. Yeah. And, you know, so yeah. uh, it's interesting too. I mean, on uh, both Bobby and Jack on separate occasions walked out of speeches at Harvard where um, the people speaking criticized Joe McCarthy. One speaker compared McCarthy to Alger Hiss, and that infuriated. I think it was Jack Kennedy. You know, saying, how dare you compare that traitor to a patriot? This is very, you know, this is also, and we've been saying this a lot lately, right? For people out there who talk about how tr we've never seen anything like Donald Trump, 
this show is pretty instructive, I think, because I'm not comparing JFK to Trump. But, you know, what is interesting, and I just thought of this literally like a minute ago, which is why it wasn't in our notes. But, um, you know, who likes Kennedy? QAnon. I've seen some QAnon stuff out there, and they think that the deep state did him in because he was changing America. Kennedy and Trump, they lump together somehow in their own fetid minds. So, I mean, it kind of it kind of makes sense being that, you know, QAnon is like a huge, you know, conspiracy based sort of like school of thought. Yeah. And as I grew up before we really even had like internet conspiracy, the conspiracy theory that everyone always talked to, it was like the kind of like granddaddy of conspiracy theories, at least from my generation. Uh, people who came of age like during the Reagan years in the 80s and 90s was like the JFK assassination. So yeah. it kind of makes sense that there's like a sort of natural connection there. Yeah, we really need. And we're to not do- we're not talking about that today. We're not talking about the assassination. So just for out for anyone out there. Yeah, we're skipping. I get, we're- I get questions whenever I talk about JFK. That's the first question. I was like, I don't really, you know, I actually think Oswald did it. So there you go. <laughs> and, but no, my, my my but you know, so you have QAnon, and and I also know like just in the last month, I've seen like people who I think we describe as radical were lefties or self-described socialists embrace Kennedy and, and essentially say the same thing. He was, you know, uh, you know, he was going to do things differently and change America and the deep state did him in. So it's like QAnon and the radical left, which is, I don't, I don't want to think about. You know, so, so the, with, with McCarthy, JFK may have regretted that connection later. I, I doubt it. But the, the, the assertion that JFK is a progressive is contradicted by his own deeds and actions. And so it's just like a kind of important thing to flag. And I actually feel like that is a, uh, um, when we kind of go back and look at the at what actually happened and what actually was said and like an, all, all the issues that we're gonna talk about today, um, what is the myth versus what is the reality? You're gonna, you're gonna find that over and over through this process. Yeah. Yeah, I think the McCarthy stuff, too, is probably the least known uh, of all this. Um, you know, like you growing up, I mean, Kennedy was just a, a larger than life. It was, you know, kind of like FDR and JFK. And Kennedy, you know, was the civil rights hero. And Kennedy was going to end world you know, war and end, do all this this kind of stuff. And and uh, he was the liberal. He was the civil rights president. He was, you know, this dove. And, um, you know, it's striking. Like when you talk about McCarthy, you know, the, the first public figure to speak out against them was a Republican senator uh, from um, <clears throat> Maine, who uh, Susan Collins does not, you know, channel, uh, Margaret Chase Smith. And like you said, Kennedy dodged the censure. He put out this really timid statement, basically blaming Roy Cohn rather than McCarthy. And, you know, he was at odds with his own party. I mean, the, the two liberals of that era were, were Harry Truman and Eleanor Roosevelt. And Kennedy had public spats with both of them. Uh, over over this issue of his support for McCarthy, he publicly rebuked Truman while he was president. You know, in, in his first and during Kennedy's first term in Congress. Um, so at the time, the liberals, I mean, they were behind Hubert Humphrey in 1960. Uh, you know, the, the actual kind of liberal wing of the party. I believe Eleanor Roosevelt in, uh, endorsed Humphrey, if I'm not mistaken. So Kennedy was, you know, considered a hardcore Cold Warrior. Uh, he had, and we'll talk about this, you know, very strong connections to the Southern Democrats, who at the time were still really super important. So, yeah, and this is one case where, like you said at the beginning, a movie, a pop culture event like the, the Oliver Stone movie really had a, a much larger impact than one would normally expect. And this one's on the liberals and the lefties. It's not a Fox News, you know, a Newsmax OAN thing. So, yeah, and just to kind of, 
kind of get into a little bit into the civil rights piece is that in many respects, civil rights was an issue thrust upon Kennedy that forced him to take a position versus like him, like kind of like stepping into like a role of leadership. The Kennedys were like the, the consummate politicians. And so, you know, I'm talk about the campaign here in a minute, but then just like as a kind of overview is that like Kennedy was actually pretty conservative on civil rights. He was actually very slow to act on the issue. Um, he was mostly looking for ways to kind of walk a line between some liberal wing, which supported Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement and placating the, the Southern Democrats who were the segregationists who very much opposed the civil rights movement. And, you know, the, the Kennedys were always, it's, it's, it's very much, I actually kind of like see this when I think about Bill Clinton and Barack Obama is that they were constantly playing this sort of, sort of political calculus. They weren't stepping into like some bold leadership position. No, pre, no president, no politician actually really does that. They basically take temperatures and then like make a decision based on that calculus. Um, it, except Trump. <laughs> yeah, Trump except, well, except for Trump. Um, he just goes by his gut, right? What's it? What is the line from High Fidelity? Um, everyone always told me to go with my gut, but then I realized my gut had shit for brains. <laughs> um, uh, Julian Bond, who was a civil rights activist, uh, said, I couldn't understand why so many people elevated Kennedy as highly as they did. He was a good figure, but not a great figure in my view, and very and was disappointing in many ways. Uh, uh, an excerpt from a, a book on JFK and MLK said that during the presidential campaign, Kennedy raised suspicions in the black community by his blatant courtship of Southern white support. It's very important here. Like historically, Kennedy is known for being a hero to the black community. Bobby Kennedy is also known for being a hero to the black community. And I'm going to touch on that here in a second, but also like, you know, the Kennedys were much more important than what Southern states they could carry in 1960. Uh, we have an excerpt from a Walter Cronkite interview, which we're going to play around Vietnam, but also in that interview, which we're not going to play today, he actually talks about what he thinks his chances are in the Southern states. And he's like kind of gaming the South. Um, to finish this quote, though, after the Democratic National Convention in July, he began shoring up his reputation among Southern leaders, meeting privately with them to allay fears that he would be an aggressive civil rights president. Kennedy promised Governor Vandiver that as president, he would never use federal troops to force Georgia to desegregate its schools. In return, Vandiver uh, declared his preference for the senator and vowed to lead Georgia into the Kennedy column on election day. Uh, and I think that's I, I think that's a really important thing is like, I wouldn't necessarily say that Kennedy was like a conservative right-wing person on Central, uh, on Central America, on civil rights, but he actually very much was like this sort of like political pragmatist who would like, you know, throw people under the bus, you know, however it suited him. Um, there was actually the first piece of civil rights legislation uh, that came up to Congress since for the first time since 1875 was in 1957. And it was where Dwight Eisenhower had actually sought to provide federal ownership to ensure that uh, African-Americans had the right to vote free from intimidation or coercion. And Kennedy voted against it mostly because he didn't want to alienate Southern Democrats when he would be running for president in 1960. And then he didn't want to come across as a radical, right? Very important thing. Kennedy is often lifted up by people who, you know, say that they have radical politics. Kennedy very much did not want to be a radical. I, I kind of feel like that same thing sort of happens with Clinton and Obama with in, oh, in sectors today. It, it's also interesting, you know, Kennedy won a Pulitzer Prize for a book Ted Sorensen wrote called 
profiles and courage. Profiles and courage. And, and he really played that when the reality in his own life was that he never showed any type of political or moral courage, whatever. He gauged, you know, whatever was kind of convenient. And, you know, just worth, you know, very briefly, because I'm a history professor, so I always have to do this, because I see this all the time where, especially Republicans are saying, well, you know, Republicans are the party of civil rights and African-Americans. And really, this is when you start to see that turn. Um, the Democratic Party was absolutely the party of segregation and the South um, through most of the 20th century. But you start to see this turn in the 60s. So the idea that somehow the Republican Party is the party of, of African-American liberation is absurd today. Uh, but Kennedy clearly was really the last president, I think, to to really take advantage of that, because even LBJ started to see the South drift away, you know, uh, by 19, well, not 1964 per se, but um, Kennedy, that was important to him, you know, that, that he have these Southern states, that he was on good terms with the governors, that he would appoint Southern judges. He appointed a lot of segregationist judges. Uh, uh, he understood the importance of judiciary, kind of like Mitch McConnell does. So, yeah, I think that, that that too is part of that legacy and that myth that really needs to be addressed, this whole idea of what Kennedy did on civil rights. Yeah. And, and actually, I feel like in the film JFK, actually, they, they also very much like frame Kennedy as a civil rights hero as well. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think that uh, on some of the issues around like Vietnam and other things that like Stone manipulates certain like interview and outtakes with Kennedy. Uh, but like in some of the footage that he films, it's actually like him very much framing him as like a hero of, of African-Americans in the civil rights movement, which maybe he was, but he definitely didn't deserve to be. Um, and kind of speaking about that, in 1960, during the, the election, between the Kennedy-Nixon election, uh, we were in the midst of a, a civil rights uprising. Uh, that's actually when the, the lunch counter sit-ins started in places like Greensboro and, and Nashville. And every day, starting in 1960, I mean, it was happening before this, but like every day during the, during the campaign, protesters were leading sit-ins, boycotts, peaceful marches across the country, calling for African-American rights under the law, equal access and opportunity into segregation that persisted in almost all the South, most parts of the South. And, and these efforts were often met with violence and arrest. And so Nixon and Kennedy, at least publicly, open, simp openly sympathized with African-Americans, but neither pushed for concrete solutions out of the campaign because once again, and both, both candidates, I would say, actually fell into this uh, category is like they were fearful of alienating Southern whites. They definitely wanted to placate the Southern Democrats uh, and and appeal to them. Um, I'm going to talk about this one kind of like really quick episode with Kennedy during the campaign, which is in 19 in October 1960, Martin Luther King was arrested at a sit-in in Atlanta, and his wife Coretta Scott King was very worried that he would actually be killed in jail. And so she appealed to some of the more liberal advisors in the Kennedy family and the Kennedy campaign uh, who acted to get King out of jail. All right. So that's great. That's a really kind of like important, positive thing. What the Kennedy family, what the Kennedy campaign then did was basically like manipulated that so that they could get like the black vote. They created a pamphlet, which was called the Blue Bomb where they advertised what Kennedy had done for King. Uh, and then they began to distribute it in black churches across the country. Uh, really important thing there is like, like when they do make a move that seems to be for civil rights, it's with, with there's strings attached. It's a, it's a very important thing. And I, I don't wanna like, I, I think that needs to be emphasized. It's like 
they are political pragmatists and they are political opportunists and they are like playing the game uh, so they can get power. And, and that's essentially what they were all about, just like every other politician, except for Trump, who like maybe didn't figure that out or, or maybe he did and did it really well. <laughs> um, once he's in office, Kennedy is very slow on civil rights. He takes incremental steps, which is too boring to list off. It's around housing, the creation of the Equal Opportunity Commission and, and things like that, and only really responded to the civil rights movement when it was like either legally required or so egregious. And so like when the Supreme Court ruled that James Meredith had was allowed to go into the University of Mississippi, the Kennedys mobilized marshals and then later federalized the Mississippi National Guard to quell violence. Uh, when freedom riders were being attacked by Southern whites, they uh, sent federal marshals in to also stop that, but that's only because it was like showing up in television. Oh, it and it was three weeks into the beatings and the the, the bombings and stuff where right. he finally kind of was forced. And he even, you know, and at the time he told, um, I think Jim Foreman from CORE that, you know, they needed to cool off. Yeah. You know, so it was always kind of like, you know, you're, you're going too fast. Uh, you want too much. Uh, you need to wait. You need to cool off. Um, you know, it was never in any way, like you said, without some kind of strings attached to it or some kind of caveat. Yeah, there's a quote which I had in my notes um, where basically there was a, a federal official in the Justice Department who were friends with some of the people organizing the Freedom Riders. And uh, Kennedy basically told them that they needed to tell their, fr their friends to stop. They, they saw the, the freedom rights as the really a no-win situation for them politically. Yeah. Well, you but know, I'm, and also don't forget Kennedy also, uh, Bobby Kennedy, who was the attorney general, um, also met with J. Edgar Hoover and and uh, eagerly greenlit the uh, campaign against Martin Luther King, um, you know, spying on him, uh, you know, creating intelligence. Uh, wiretaps, wiretaps. Wire all that stuff. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, the Kennedys, uh, clearly were part of that, you know, absolutely, uh, well into like 1961, 1962. And, you know, even in, in, you know, it, well, I, I don't want to jump ahead of things, but when we talk about the, um, you know, when Kennedy finally does relent and agree to, uh, the civil rights act, I mean, he's forced into that by these violent, um, attacks in the streets that are being shown on the nightly news, you know, yep. every night. Yep. History sort of portrays Kennedy's. Like, so that starts in April 1963. Police dogs are attacking civil rights workers. And so history really portrays Kennedy as being like in shock about that. But the but, you know, the civil rights movement actually were fairly, very strategic and like had really sort of like with the freedom rides, with people working, you know, this is beyond Kennedy's death, but like working like in Mississippi Freedom Summer and things like that is like bringing white college students in to help organize voting drives in Mississippi and Alabama lead to, and then it also being on television because like their civil rights movement leadership was also very media savvy, was actually able to communicate through newspapers and television on the nightly news every night back to, you know, middle America outside of the South and even in parts of the South that like, this is like a courageous thing happening. This is brutal violence and people need to act. And it, it you know, it escalated 
the campaign into a national fight, escalated pressure on Kennedy, later escalated pressure on Johnson, which led to like, you know, them basically shifting on, you know, civil rights legislation. Very, very important strategic thing yeah. that the that the civil rights movement did. And I also want to like really emphasize this, like Kennedy and Johnson were not the leaders here. They were responding to the real leadership, which was the civil rights movement. And I know we've had this discussion before. Um, at the time, it really wasn't until the like the really the most violent police responses in like Birmingham, where they attacked kids with fire hoses and police dogs, that Kennedy was forced to act. And and I think the thing we've talked about before is like you know that idea of going so far over the edge that you finally you know give somebody like Kennedy the political space to do something, and whether you could do that today. And based on what we're seeing, you know, with the the new attacks on like defunding the police and everybody's blaming, you know, like AOC for not winning more and things like that, you know, that's still at play. This is exactly the same dynamic. And and we they may have been actually further ahead in 1963, the Democrats, than they are today, because at the time, you know, there was this idea that you could go too far. And we just witnessed the summer of the police attacking and brutalizing all kinds of people walls of moms and nine-year-old kids and African-Americans all over the country. And the Democrats are far more willing to attack three words, defund the police, than they are to attack these police who are committing these atrocities on a daily basis. Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I mean, again, like just think the whole idea that we're living in uncharted territory and uncharted times is bad. There's absolutely no doubt about it. But, you know, we need to kind of be aware that this is also kind of what America is. And this is what liberals are. That's really important. This is what liberals are. Yeah. You know, yep. you can get outraged all you want, but this is who they are. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The last bit I'll say about Kennedy and the civil rights movement, because uh, we could talk, well, we have talked about this quite a bit in, in other episodes. But like the other thing I'll say is that the March on Washington, which is seen as the sort of like a, a another watershed moment in the civil rights movement, it's actually seen as in a watershed moment in the age of era of protest, in my opinion. Uh, was the march on, so the march on Washington? Kennedy was actually very skeptical of it. He actually did everything he could to discourage it from happening. Um, it's it's interesting. Twenty thirteen was the fiftieth anniversary, and so uh, kind of doing some research. There's like you know a lot of media covered it. There's an NPR interview with uh, John Lewis and a number of like historians talking about the March on Washington. John Lewis is very much like Kennedy was great. You know, he was supportive of us. We went and met with him later that day. And he was like a father just really embracing us because we're, you know, we had done this amazing thing. Right. So that's very much the frame coming from like the establishment liberals, you know, John Lewis is a hero in many ways, but also like sort of was also like sort of like carried the liberal establishment water for a long time as well afterwards uh to talk to the historians they were very much more like looking at you know documentation tapes interviews with people it's like kennedy was like dead set against it he was like this is very much like where he thought he, he was being conservative he didn't want to alienate the south he didn't want to be seen as too radical he didn't want to be seen as embracing the civil rights movement very important thing to sort of like kind of keep in mind and John Lewis in 1963 knew that because Lewis almost didn't speak that day because it was the Kennedy people who were furious. They wanted to see the speech ahead of time, people associated with Kennedy and the in the movement. And, and it wasn't King's decision. It was people, you know, outside of that, you know. So, I mean, um, yeah, Lewis later on kind of revised that, that whole era, you know, uh, and he tempered his own, you know, kind of place in it, I think, because he was kind of the, the the badass of that day, of that whole event. And he, you know, kind of shrunk away from it in some yeah. regard. 
Yeah. The, the other thing I want to talk about is uh, like, you know, memory versus history. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it's like a kind of important thing to note is when we're talking with someone about their memory and there's like revision, there's revision that happens versus like when you kind of explore the history of what happened, it's like tells maybe slightly different story or, or sometimes not so slight. Yeah. You know, growing up, that was just kind of the framework. It was more, more about civil rights because the Vietnam War was still, you know, kind of ending when I was really little. So um, the whole kind of the Kennedy, the, I think the first part of the Kennedy persona myth was this kind of civil rights heroism. And so, you know, later when, um, you know, I, I learned about this, you know, I was like pretty shocked actually, because it really was 180 degrees away from what I had always heard in every venue, not just at home, but like everywhere, you know, Kennedy was kind of an untouchable at that point. And I think a lot of that did have to do with kind of the assassination and the, the kind of martyrdom that came with it. But um, and, and and after the assassination, the Kennedy family essentially like creating this myth. Yeah. Right? Like and and the one thing one thing I didn't actually really know this until I was like kind of later into my adulthood is like the whole like Kennedy Camelot um, sort of myth is like, you know, they didn't actually come up with that until after he had died. Right, the comparisons of of Kennedy to like that sort of yeah. Like, I mean, Arthur Schlesinger, who's the best known, you know, he was part of the, he was a close friend of the family, and he's kind of called what was always called the court historian, and wrote uh, Pulitzer Prize winning books on both Bobby uh, John and Bobby Kennedy. But yeah, he did it. I mean, they they liked the play Camelot, and that was known before you know the White House, but um, that was it. You know, it would be like uh, Trump liked uh, you know celebrity gladiators or whatever wwe i don't know what hamilton hamilton yeah i don't know what the hell he watches but uh <laughs> but yeah i mean there, there was careful a, a careful crafting of it i have not read it yet but my doctoral advisor mike hogan uh his most recent book uh is called the afterlife of john f kennedy which i think talks about about that and and it's it's you know schlesinger i wouldn't like at the end you know we often recommend stuff i mean if you want to understand the the Kennedy myth, then yeah, look at Schlesinger because it's this massive book. It's called A Thousand Days. Uh, and a bunch of the Kennedy people wrote these really glowing, you know, biographies of him in the aftermath. Uh, and it wasn't until much later that you kind of started to get um, the reality. And, and even to this point, you still haven't. I mean, there's no real revision on him like you see on a, on a lot of people, you know, academically. Like I said, I still, I think most liberals and, and even a lot of people on the left still have a very positive uh, uh, you know, impression of him even now, even even after all this stuff is available. The other thing I'll say, I'm kind of ranting, but I, I, I'm doing being a professor today. That's why I have this on. But uh, you know, I remember when I went to the Kennedy Library to do research some time ago. Of all the archives, and I've been to like most of the major archives in the U.S., um, they were by far the least useful. Uh, they were protecting years. I mean, this is decades later. They were still protecting his reputation. Uh, you know, if your door's curtain's good one, they'll let you see the stuff because they know what you're going to do. But um, it was very hard for me to get much. I mean, I was there. Plus for, her husband worked for them. Yeah, Dick Goodwin, yeah. Uh, but, you know, people like our best loss. People who are safe, they'll let see. But otherwise, you know, and it may be different now. I haven't been there for a while. But uh, at the time, it was really hard for me to get access to much. Like after about two days, I was done. Whereas, you know, I spent months, you know, at the LBJ library over the course of, you know, decades now. So the Kennedy people have been very careful about preserving uh, that historical reputation, uh, even, you know, 60 years later. 
Thanks for listening to the Green and Red podcast, folks. If you want to follow us on social media, please check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Please go to our YouTube page and hit subscribe. And then if you want to become a donor or just make a one-time donation, to make a one-time donation, go to greenandredpodcast.org and hit the donate link. And then to become a, a regular donor or what is known as a patron, please go to patreon.com forward slash greenredpodcast and join the, the large and growing donor base that we have. Thanks. Thank you. Share everything too. And uh, tell your friends. To kind of shift gears a little bit to foreign policy. Yeah. Um, Kennedy, well, I think that, and, and that may be the biggest part of the whole Oliver Stone created myth was this idea that Kennedy was a dove. He was concerned about the Cold War, concerned about the arms race. Uh, he did sign a nuclear testing treaty, or I think it was a testing treaty. Yeah. And, um, and most importantly, he had grave uh, fears about where Vietnam was headed and was ready to get out. And then it gets even weirder. This is the kind of whole QAnon thing where um, the CIA and the Joint Chiefs of Staff were so pissed off that he was going to end the Cold War and attack the military industrial complex that they had him assassinated. Um, there is, like most of these conspiracies, like all the conspiracies we're seeing in 2020, utterly zero evidence for any of this about Kennedy. And yet Oliver Stone and liberals ran with it, and a lot of people still believe it today. And the reason, like, in his inaugural, the most famous line is asked, what is it asked not what you can, uh, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Right. But the segment we played was, you know, let the word go forth. And that's a very aggressive segment, which, you know, and I think that as much as anything really um, is how I always identify JFK. He was a cold warrior uh, from the, the loss of China, you know, uh, to everything. Like in, in the 1950s, he was one of the first uh, patrons of Nodin Ziem, who they put in place as the, the president of what they, that country they created, South Vietnam, was, wasn't a real country, they created it. Uh, Kennedy in 1956 made speeches on the Senate on behalf of Vietnam, talking about how important it was, the cornerstone of the free world in Asia. Um, he, during the 1960 campaign, he attacked Nixon uh, for his policies on Cuba. Nixon and Eisenhower, he said, had um, been um, soft in uh, Cuba. And so this is just a really short clip. It's about literally six seconds. It's a, this is just an excerpt from a debate where he goes off on, on Nixon about that. I resent that comment when he's never really protested the communists seizing Cuba 90 miles off the coast of the United States. We all have tempers. I have. So. Um, and hardball isn't just played in Fenway. Yeah, that's whoever did that. But, uh, oh, yeah. You, you, the only time Nixon ever got, like, kind of screwed politically was by a Kennedy, which, which if you understand, you know. But, yeah, during that campaign, that was a, a, a that was persistent theme. Like, you know, these guys are soft. Um, it's funny because uh, Kennedy kept uh, one of the main themes of the 1960 campaign was the missile gap. The Soviet Union, Eisenhower and Nixon have let the Soviet Union catch up with us. I, I should have gotten the real numbers. By 1960, the United States had 16,000 nuclear weapons and the Soviet Union had, I think, less than 1,000, definitely less than 2,000. So the whole time and, and the thing, the beauty of it, if you know, if you like hardball politics, is this is classified stuff. So unlike Trump, Nixon actually maintain the confidentiality so he couldn't say well actually we have plans to overthrow castro or actually we have this huge advantage in missiles so kennedy knew and still played that you know against nixon and, and really worked it so kennedy was the hawk in 1960 
you know, we need more, you know, we, we, we need to win the, the, the arms race. Uh, we need to stop the missile gap. The missile, it's the missile oh, gap, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and Vietnam wasn't the issue yet. Um, in the interregnum in early January of 1961, Kennedy met with Eisenhower and Eisenhower was having something of an epiphany. This is when, you know, when he did the, the military industrial conflict speech, and Eisenhower even told him that, you know, Southeast Asia wasn't that important. And if there was a place in Southeast Asia to worry about, it would be Laos. And that's far too complicated to go into. But Laos had a, a leftist rebellion going on at the same time. So Kennedy, you know, this he came about this on his own. And 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 liberals like to say that that they're pushed into things, you know, they're forced on the defensive. And in the reality is they embrace it. You know, that's that's what they believe. So Kennedy uh, made choices when uh, uh, he took over. And so, um, you know, Cuba was actually the first crisis too. you know, it was John Kennedy who launched the Bay of Pigs invasion. Right. And the kind of frame there is that, that he was pushed into that. Right. By the, right. By the when, CIA and Dulles. Right. And, no. And in the reality, and, and a, a blur for myself, my, my first book was called masters of war, military descent and politics of the Vietnam era. And, it, you know, to some degree, like this Oliver Stone kind of idea kind of propelled it because, you know, I started looking into this stuff and seeing something very different. And in fact, a lot of military advisors were against the Bay of Pigs and Kennedy threw them under the bus. Like David Shute, Marine Commandant, we've talked about before, uh, was very adamant about telling him, like, this is a huge risk. You, you better be aware of what you're getting into. No, there were plans that were clearly contingency plans for an attack on Cuba that had been around since January 1st, 1959, right? But yeah. no, this was Kennedy's call. Um, and, you know, part of the the anger was that, like, once it was clear that it was a disaster, everybody was killed or captured. Kennedy was supposed to send in air support. That was the claim that Cuban said, oh, you know, he was supposed to. And, you know, if there is a conspiracy, and honestly, I do believe Oswald killed him, I would think it would did the Miami Cubans. If anybody had anything to do with Kennedy getting killed, it would have been the Miami Cubans who were pissed off at him because they wanted Castro dead. Yeah, but but it was Kennedy who greenlit the, the Bay of Pigs. It was a fiasco. He looked like shit afterward. And it was actually one of his advisors, Walt Rostow, Walt Whitman Rostow. Uh, you know, his brother, Eugene Rostow, who's another co- hardcore right wing nut. You know what his middle name is, Eugene? Eugene Debs Rostow. <laughs> Their, their father was a uh, a Russian, like a, a Russian socialist. And so right. I don't know. I, I hope he didn't live to see that, you know, um, but uh, and, and, and he and he was at the LBJ school in Austin. I actually met him one time when I went there and did research. Oh, I, I interviewed him. It was like an agonizing 30 minutes. Oh, my God, it was painful. Um, but you war, know, and, and for, for folks at home, war criminal, like oh, national big. security advisor to LBJ. Kiss, during, kiss and Jerry. Kissingerian level war criminal. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And Rostow said, you know, maybe uh, clean cut success in Vietnam can like kind of make people forget about this disaster in Cuba. And and so that really, you know, that wasn't even on. on, So, again, this is Kennedy's responsibility, like like to your point. And then, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, too, which and I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But Kennedy gets great praise for that, you know, I think, you know, people, most people are aware uh, the Soviet Union put missiles in in Cuba and um, they weren't activated yet. And and American uh, reconnaissance flights found them. And and this created the gravest Cold War crisis. Right. Um, The missiles weren't activated yet. um, And Kennedy, you know, came to the brink. He sent ships to blockade Cuba. The the Soviet Union had ships headed there and they stopped. You know, if they hadn't, who knows? Um, The the, uh, Soviet Union wanted... The first uh, 
proposal they made was to swap out old. There, there were these missiles in uh, Turkey. I forget what they're called. Remember Jupiter, they, they're Jupiter, Jupiter missiles in Turkey, and the U.S. was that uh, NATO was going to get rid of them anyway. And so uh, Khrushchev said, "To save face, could you remove those?" And Kennedy initially refused. Uh, the other day, I was listening. Yesterday or this morning, I was listening to a. Uh, a conversation between Kennedy and Dwight Eisenhower where they talk about that. And Kennedy says, I'm not going to do that. So um, even this praise Kennedy gets for his restraint, it was actually kind of reckless because, you know, they're, you know, whether, you know, I mean, this this is really an issue of Cuban sovereignty, which the U.S. never recognized anyway. I mean, the Bay of Pigs proved that. And this occurs after the Bay of Pigs and after who knows how many assassination attempts on Castro. So um, Kennedy brought the world to the brink of a nuclear exchange over missiles that weren't activated in a country that the U.S. was trying to invade with a leader that the United States had been repeatedly trying to assassinate in a country that had 16,000 nuclear weapons. So the idea that he was somehow restrained and statesman like that is is just part of it's it's Cold War bullshit propaganda again. Now you can be worked out. I didn't realize. Keith, I forgot. I haven't thought about him for so long. How much how despicable he really was. <laughs> I, That's why Gary this Hart. is the myth-busting episode. This is a myth bust. Did we mention Gary Hart at the beginning? Yeah. Uh, of yeah. The, the Kennedy-esque figures, yeah. Yeah, yeah this is he's more Joe Quimby than, than Gary Hart. But uh, anyway, um, but on Vietnam, I think it's, it's really the, the, the center, the fulcrum of that whole Kennedy myth, uh, because that was the basis of, you know, Oliver Stone had done Platoon. He was, I guess he's the official filmmaker of the Vietnam War. I don't think anybody's even close, right? And born on the 4th of July, which also July. is before JFK. Yeah, and uh, which I actually like better than Platoon. Um, and, you know, he's he's become kind of a lefty stu- superstar, too. He did that, what was a series on, like, Showtime or something about left-wing history. Uh, so, he, he did he did a thing with people's history of the U.S., too. That yeah, was on Netflix. yeah. Is that this? I, think, I, did, I never watched I, 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 I did never watch it because I couldn't. I didn't either. Stomachs. Yeah, I mean, it's down, not, not to sound like an asshole, but it's like nothing we don't know. So, um, but... Uh, um, to get to Kennedy, uh, so Vietnam wasn't that important to him. Cuba was more important. Berlin in 1961 was more important because the the you know they built a wall and Kennedy wanted it down, uh, you know, and I think Mexico was going to pay for it too. But uh, um, so well, Kennedy, what, you know, but when <laughs> when Kennedy uh, was inaugurated on January 20th, there were 800 American advisors in Vietnam. Now, the United States has spent a lot of money there already, but there are 800 American military personnel, and you could airbrush advisors or not. It doesn't matter. Um, but that number increased dramatically and rapidly, uh, and aid to the, the Southern Vietnamese, the RV and the Republic of Vietnam, I, I don't call it South Vietnam because there's no such thing, right? There's The United States cut Vietnam in half and invented a state below the 17th parallel. Uh, they created the army. They sent by 1961, probably 2 billion US dollars, which is an, a fairly immense amount of money for a country that was never important, for a country the size of like New Mexico, right? But uh, Kennedy approved expanding the army of the South from 20,000 to 170,000 troops. There's a lot of really arcane stuff having to do with like currency exchanges and creating like a you know piaster pegging it to the dollar. I'm not going to go into the point is this is an American like fiefdom. You know, uh, the United States is paying for all this. So they increased the argument from 20 to 170,000. Then again, by another 30,000. These are all in the Kennedy years, in the Kennedy era. Uh, they enlarged the Civil Guard from 32,000 to 68,000 uh, troops. Um Kennedy sent ZM uh, $42 million on, on top of what had already been appropriated in 1961. 
than in 1962, $225 million. My favorite story, uh, in, 19, in May of 1961, Kennedy sent LBJ uh, to Vietnam to prop up. ZM was very brutal and repressive and, and not popular at all. And the uh, enemy, the, the National Liberation Front, the Viet Cong, was kind of laying low. They were just kind of let, letting ZM just destroy himself, self-destroy and, and implode. And so Kennedy wanted to bulk up support for ZM. And he sent Johnson to Vietnam and it's on the cover of Time magazine. And, and he gives this press conference with ZM and, you know, he's like a foot taller. And he says, no, Din ZM is the Winston Churchill of Southeast Asia. You know, and everybody's kind of giggling. And on the airplane, Stanley Carnow, a very famous journalist, said, dude, that thing about, you know, about Churchill, what, what, where did that come from? And Johnson looked at Carnow and he said, shit, man, he's the only boy we got out here. And, you know, when people say, why did the United States get involved in Vietnam? It's like, shit, man, is the only boy we got. I mean, that's all they had, you know. Yeah. No one with any credibility in Vietnam was on the side of the Americans. So they get this guy, ZM. They put him in power. He had been Kennedy's guy. Kennedy, if there were three people responsible for ZM, it would be Kennedy, Francis Cardinal Spellman, and Mike Mansfield, the Catholics. It was the part of this kind of Catholic cabal, right? Mike, Mike Mansfield, who was the Senate Majority Leader. Right. And, and, and I guarantee you Joe Biden would have been the fourth if he'd been around at the time. Yep. Yep. I guarantee that. Yep. Um, and, I, I just, so, I just want to like point something out in contrast yeah. to like what we see in Oliver Stone's film is like, this does not sound like the actions of a dove trying to pull a country out of no. the situation. No. Kennedy refused negotiations with Hoxie Men or the National Liberation Front. Uh, he said, and, and, and there's kind of a conspiracy theory that actually is, is true on this. So I'll get to Kennedy. And this is important. Early on, he said, if we don't support the South, if we negotiate with Hoxie Men, then that will display a and these are his words, a major crisis of nerve. And that's important because. You know, I to be a little more serious than shit, man. He's even boy. We got to hear like why Vietnam, and and the the brilliant historian Gabriel Coco, who I think has written by far the best stuff on Vietnam. And there's some good stuff out there. George McTK and is somebody else I'd recommend highly as long as well as this Bazanko guy. Uh, but um, he's at the top of our reading list. <laughs> yeah, but Coco always made the point that Vietnam was about credibility. That in those years of the Cold War, and Kennedy understood this as the, the consummate Cold Warrior, understood this as well as anybody, that you had to have credibility. You had to tell, show your friends you had their back, and you had to show your enemies that you would got them if you had to. And so that idea of a major crisis of nerve is really critical in this because there really aren't important material resources in Vietnam. There was some sense that there might be some oil, you know, in the South China Sea. There's some tin and tungsten there, but it's not like... This isn't like oil rubber, in the Middle the East. The rubber, it's the rubber industry. The right. rubber, yeah, which, you know, what's French, which, you know, like Michelin owned a bunch of plantations in, in Vietnam. But this isn't like, you know, uh, oil in Iran or United Fruit or Kennecott Copper in Chile. It's nothing that, you know, blatant, right? Um, it's more, uh, what was the word Rudy Giuliani was stumped on? Oblique? He didn't know what it meant? Uh, what was yeah. it? Uh, yeah. Oblique. It was oblique, right? <laughs> it means you can't see it. No, it means exactly it means so, um, noted draft dodger. Yeah. So that idea of credibility is really important. Kennedy was young. He was only 42. He looked bad at the, the Bay of Pigs. He looked bad with the Berlin Wall. He had a meeting in Geneva with Khrushchev and Khrushchev kind of brushed him off. So he had he needed to show the world that he, he should be taken seriously, you know, 
Uh, it's kind of like the Fredo speech, you know, I'm smart, you know, kind of thing. He had to kind of show the world that. He was kind of considered something of an empty suit. Ted Sorensen and, you know, everyone kind of knew Ted Sorensen had written Profiles of Courage, probably wrote his uh, honors thesis at Harvard as well. Um, and so Vietnam became the place where all of that was going to happen. Um, so in addition to all of the aid he sent to the, to the government in, in, in uh, Saigon, ZM, the United States, when Kennedy took over, had 800 uh, advisors in Vietnam. By November of 1961, it was 3,400. By November of 1962, it was 11,000. Um, and by, you know, when Kennedy died, it was 16,000. Um, in 1962, the war was going really badly, and Kennedy's aware of this. The military was never eager to fight in Vietnam, and so they had been cascading the White House with all kinds of really bleak and pessimistic ideas, you know, appraisals of the war. Everyone knew it was going badly. That And, and, and they also knew, and Eisenhower on knew this, that Ho Chi Minh was by far the most popular politician in, in Vietnam. There was no question about that. Everybody knew that. That wasn't a secret. Um, and so Kennedy continued to, to send troops and advisors in. And by 1962, it became so grave that a major military escalation took place. And this is lost in the Oliver Stone kind of myth, mythical uh, uh, version of Vietnam. Um, Kennedy sent in tanks. He sent in aircraft. The idea there would be that the tanks and aircraft could flush out uh, any VC who were um, like in the jungles. Um, he sent helicopter units, fixed wing aircraft, a troop carrier squadron, recon planes, air controllers, crop defoliants, Agent Orange, that started with Kennedy, Navy minesweepers, CS gas, and napalm. So the ecological war in Vietnam started with JFK. And, and you know, again, no one's forcing him into this. In fact, the the uh, advice he's getting from the military, who Stone and most most historians who've written about this, which is why I'm kind of proud of what I did, because the, the narrative on Vietnam was always that, you know, the military was gung-ho about Vietnam, and they wanted to blow, you know, Vietnam back into the Stone Age and this and that. And the reality is actually 180 degrees apart. You know, Kennedy's, um, Trump's national security advisor, H.R. McMaster, uh, wrote a book about this where he blamed the JCS because they didn't make their point that you needed to do more strongly enough. When in fact, the opposite is true. The, the military never was eager to fight Vietnam, and they were very honest with Kennedy about how bad things were going. So the idea that he was forced into this, that Trump somehow didn't act on his own will, uh, was was ridiculous. So yeah, we had 800 in January of 1961. I've got the real numbers here. 3,400 in April 62, 11,000 in November of uh, 62, and then 16,700. The Arvin, by that time, grew again. It was now 220,000. The Civil Guard, 77,000. Uh, the United States had a group called the Michigan State Group, which was advising and creating a civil police force, kind of a militia and internal police, uh, which was getting like tens of millions of, of dollars. So all of that was was part of this, this Kennedy program. Now, people like Stone and others who um, have uh, claimed that Kennedy you know, was going to get out of the war often cite this. And, and this is an interview you alluded to earlier with Walter Cronkite which was done on September 2nd, 1963. So we're talking just two months before uh, ZM was murdered on November 1st. So this is just two months before ZM and like 10 weeks before Kennedy. 
Um, he also did an interview with Huntley and Brinkley, which uh, I would also encourage you. I have it up here. I'm not going to play because they're very similar. Uh, the Huntley Brinkley interview, which is on September 9th, I think, which is just audio. But this is really worth it. And we're going to play like two, three minutes of it here in order to give you some sense of where Kennedy's head was. This is the, the guy that Oliver Stone claims was about to get out of Vietnam. He was about to get out of the Cold War. He was going to repudiate the military industrial. He was going to stand up to the military industrial complex. Right. All that stuff. And real important point about this interview, too, that uh, while Bob's getting that ready, is that I want to make is that like Stone actually uses a small excerpt of this interview in the film to, you know, try and make his like Kennedy as a dove argument. Can anyone to pull out of Vietnam? Whereas when you watch the full interview, it tells a different story. The opposite story, in fact. Yeah. Mr. President, the only hot war we've got running at the moment is, of course, the one in Vietnam. Uh, and we've got our difficulties there, quite obviously. Uh, the headline and the story in the New York Times yesterday morning was rather an interesting one. It said that uh, the administration will try diplomacy in Vietnam, which uh, I'd assume we've been trying all along. Uh, what can we do in this situation, which uh, seems to parallel other uh, famous debacles of uh, dealing with unpopular governments in the past? Well, in the first place, we ought to realize that Vietnam has been at war for 25 years, and uh, the Japanese, years. I remember a good many uh, people who said uh, two years ago that it wouldn't last six months. A good many uh, newspapers said that. Uh, a good many local correspondents said it. Well, it's still, the war is still going. In many ways, it's going better. That doesn't mean, however, that the events of the last two months aren't very ominous. I don't think that uh, unless a greater effort is made by the government to win popular support, they, that the war can be won out there. In the final analysis, it's their war. They're the ones who have to win it or lose it. We can help them. That's, them the, that's the excerpt from the uh, film. Then out there as advisors, but they have to win it, the people of Vietnam against the communists. We're prepared to continue to assist them. But I don't think that the war can be won unless the people support the effort. And in my opinion, in the last two months, the government has gotten out of touch with the people. The repressions against the Buddhists, uh, we felt, were very unwise. Now, uh, all we can do is to make it very clear that we don't think this is the way to win. It's my hope that this will become increasingly obvious to the government, that they will take steps to try to bring back popular support for this very essential struggle. But these people who say that uh, we ought to withdraw from Vietnam are wholly wrong, because if we withdrew from Vietnam, the communists would control Vietnam. Pretty soon, Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Malaya would go, and all of Southeast Asia would be under the control of the communists and under the domination of the Chinese. And then India, Burma would be the next target. So I think we should stay. We should make it clear, as Ambassador Lodge is now making it clear, that while we want to help, we don't see a successful ending to this war unless the people will support it, and the people will not support the effort if uh, the government continues to follow the policy of the past two months. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, talk about cherry picking, uh, you know, well, 12 seconds out of uh, that. You know, Kennedy is utterly clear about Vietnam being important that the United States should say he invokes the domino theory, which he did a week later, very specifically with, with Chuck Huntley. Um, Kennedy, there were some troop rotations already in schedule. So actually, some troops did withdraw from Vietnam in the fall of 1963. And people are saying, oh, look, he was starting to bring troops on. Those are just those are regular troop rotations. 
Kennedy made no effort. Now, it's also, I think, uh, telling, and this is where it's actually not a conspiracy theory comes in. Kennedy often, in the last few interviews he did, talked about the Buddhists. And there had been um, this Buddhist opposition to ZM throughout. ZM was Catholic, hence the kind of Francis Cardinal Spellman and everybody else thing. Um, and, and Vietnam was overwhelmingly Buddhist, 80, 90 percent. Yet the Catholics were in the country administratively, politically, militarily. You know, you convert to Catholicism to get promoted in the military, things like that. So the Buddhists really ratcheted things up. And ZM ratcheted up the repression of the Buddhists to the point where he was like going into temples with troops. And then you had the famous immolation, which we talked about with Jack Downey, uh, the uh, Bonds Quang Duc in uh in saigon in, in june of 1963 immolate himself and so that's when the world really took notice of just how despotic the the new regime no din zm and his brother um, the no regime i'm sorry no din zm and his brother no din new had become and his new's wife madam new you know after the immolation said oh the next time we have a buddhist barbecue i'll bring the gasoline you know so just inflamed bad but in the world and that's when the U.S. turned. And the idea there in, in all the literature was that the United States turned because not because they didn't want to be in Vietnam, because Ziem was blowing it. Ziem was losing because he was so despotic. Right. So that's not, you know, the sign of a country ready to get out. But what later came out and George McTK, who was a brilliant scholar, great, gentle man, just a wonderful guy. Um, found out, you know, he was there. Well, first of all, he knew these guys. He had spent time in Vietnam. He knew Zop, he knew Ho, and he did amazing research. He spoke and read Vietnamese. What was happening in 1963 was that Ziem and his brother knew that their days were numbered. Mm -hmm. And so they began making secret overtures to the north, to Hanoi, to get to some kind of a, a compromise agreement, to some kind of, you know, government of reconciliation where, you know, inevitably that would lead to, to the, the communists taking over. You know, basically ZM and New wanted to, you know, get a little, buy a little time, have an interval, have this kind of, you know, coalition government and then get out with, with their money or, you know, their Swiss accounts or whatever. That was what tipped the scales because American intelligence found out about that. And that's what really propelled the United States. Now, the U.S. was deeply involved in the coup against ZM on November 1st, 1963. There had been talks of coups since 1954 the United States had been part of and never really kind of went all in on them. But ZM had been, you know, kind of on borrowed time for, for a while. And what tipped the scale wasn't the bonds burning himself or, or, or these. It was the fact that ZM was about to cut a deal with Hanoi. And Kennedy was far more afraid that peace would break out in Vietnam, that Vietnam would be reunified with Ho Chi Minh and the communists in charge. That was what, what he feared. So that's why the United States finally agreed to the overthrow of ZM. The U.S. was involved in that coup. That's not the move that's not what an administration trying to get out of Vietnam, administration trying to create peace does not, you know, have a coup of that nature. And I mean, it went bad. It was, you know, uh, ZM and his brother were murdered. They were supposed to flee to Paris. They were murdered. They were found in a van. Kennedy was aghast. And what I want to play as we go out is I just found this literally this morning. Kennedy did. And this is for history. Kennedy did just kind of a memorandum for history. Uh, which I found today, and it's about the coup. 
and he lays it out. And this is clearly his way of kind of trying to blame other people and throw other people under the bus. But also, you can't listen to all of these things that Kennedy said. If you can't read the record, you can't read the documents without understanding John Kennedy is not a dove. John Kennedy is a cold warrior. Kennedy is all in on the military industrial complex. Kennedy increased defense budgets. He increased, uh, um, you know, this, Kennedy's the guy behind the, the race to the moon. I mean, NASA and, and space had a military application. You know, they call it the military industrial complex for a reason. There's an industrial part of it. So there are clearly, you know, military applications to, to outer space, right? Space, space, there was Space Force a long time before space Force, 2018, yeah. <laughs> 20, 2019, um, whenever that came up. So uh, Kennedy is, is, and, you know, I'm getting more animated about this because I think when you have even lefties who have this this history and try to it, it plays into also like this great man theory, you know, Trump is uniquely bad and Kennedy was good and da da da. And it really ignores this kind of entire, like really structural, deep structural nature of the military industrial complex. You know, it's it's this capitalist, you know, enterprise, which is the show like the show we did on why they wanted Trump out, you know. Um, Trump is un unstable and, and these guys want stability. And so Kennedy is clearly as much as anybody was, was a part of that. Kennedy isn't gonna, wasn't cutting defense budgets. He actually cut taxes and, and suspended antitrust laws as well. So that whole liberal thing, right? Um, you know, Kennedy gets a lot of credit because he, he read, um, Michael Harrington's book, The Other America, and kind of created a framework that Johnson would pick up with, you know, the war on poverty and the great society. But at the same time, Kennedy was a hardcore Keynesian. He cut taxes. He believed, you know, kind of in a, in a early version of trickle down that if you, which kind of worked, you know, if you cut taxes, that'll be reinvested because in 1962, you could do that. The economy was still blowing up. And Vietnam hadn't taken a hit yet. And Vietnam had a, a major impact on the, on the U.S. economy as well. So Kennedy gets a lot of credit for it. But the reality is he's he's up there with any of them. You know, when you think of, you know, when I was in graduate school, you know, and I studied U.S. foreign policy, you know, when you thought of like cold warriors, the three people you thought of were, were Harry Truman, Dean Acheson and, uh, and, and John Kennedy, John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Yeah. And so um, I want to play this. Uh, audio of him uh, transcribing his thoughts about the ZM coup, because I think, like I said, I just heard them myself. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's kind of an important, uh, you know, part of this whole thing, right? Monday, November 4th, 1963. The, uh, over the weekend, the uh, coup in Saigon took place, culminated uh, three months of a conversation about a coup, comma, conversation which divided the government here and in Saigon. Opposed to a coup was uh, General Taylor, the Attorney General, Secretary McNamara, to a somewhat lesser degree, John McCone, partly because of an old hostility to Lodge, which causes him to lack confidence in Lodge's judgment, um, partly to, as a result of a new hostility the Lodge uh, shifted his station chief. Semicolon in favor of the coup was state, led by Abel Harriman, George Ball, Roger Hillsman, supported by Mike Fosto at the White House. I uh, feel that uh, we must bear a good deal of responsibility for it, beginning with our cable of early August, in which we 
suggested the coup. Period, in my judgment, that wire was badly drafted. Comrade should never have been sent on a Saturday. I uh, should not have given my consent to it without a roundtable conference in which McNamara and Taylor could have presented their views. Uh, while we did redress that balance in later wires, it, that first wire encouraged Lodge along a course to which he was, in any case, inclined. Hawkins continued to oppose the coup on the ground that the military effort was doing well. There was a sharp split between Saigon and the rest of the country. Politically, the situation was deteriorating. Militarily, it had not had its effect. There was a feeling, however, that it would. For this reason, Secretary McNamara and General Taylor supported applying additional pressures to Zem and New in order to move them. Why do the leaves fall? Why does the snow come on the ground? Why do the leaves turn green? And where do we go to the Cape? It's summer. <laughs> I was uh, shocked by the death of Zim and New. I'd met Zim with Justice Douglas many years ago. He was an extraordinary character. While he became increasingly difficult in the last months, nevertheless, over a 10-year period, he'd held his country together, maintained its independence under very adverse conditions. The way he was killed made it particularly abhorrent. The question now is whether the generals can stay together and build a stable government, or whether Saigon will begin to turn on public opinion in Saigon, intellectuals, students, etc., will turn on this government as repressive and undemocratic in the not-too-distant future. So, again, that's pretty clear-cut. Uh, and uh, very poignant, you know, when you see a son come in there. Uh, right. But um, Vietnam was had become the centerpiece uh, of Kennedy's, basically his administration by that point, civil rights in Vietnam, both, obviously civil rights at home. Uh, Vietnam was becoming a much bigger issue, still not as, as big as the civil rights movement in the United States. But Kennedy kind of had staked his, his international reputation by that time on it. Uh, he had consistently escalated, ratcheted it up, despite these fantasies of Stone and actually a lot of scholars. Kennedy was never wavering in his support uh, of of the government there, the ZM regime. And then, you know, because because ZM was making these overtures to the North, the war was going badly, the Buddhists were in an uproar. Um, he approved. I mean, at the end of the day, the president green lights a coup, you know, some functionary in the Department of State or in the embassy doesn't. It's also worth noting that the, the person who was the, the biggest kind of uh, advocate of getting rid of ZM and knew was Henry Cabot Lodge, who was the U.S. ambassador to Saigon. And Kennedy had defeated him for his Senate seat in 1952. Yep. And, and Lodge and Maxwell Taylor, who was an old friend of the Kennedy family, hated each other. They, they were not close. So there are this kind of other kinds of intrigue too. But Kennedy... 
uh, you know, it's a beautiful myth, Camelot, and the beautiful young family, the kids. It's very poignant. Um, you know, the whole family. I think the dynasty's kind of finally flickered out. One of the was it great nephews ran for the Senate in Massachusetts and lost kind of handily this year to Marquis. Yeah. Yeah. But, and, and again, I think if, I think Biden is the last, really the last flicker of it. Joe Biden is really kind of about the only politician in America at that level who could have some kind of connection to the Kennedys because he's, he's older and he really does fit in into that framework. Served in the I mean, Senate for, you know, 30 yeah. years with Teddy and. Yeah. I mean, Teddy Kennedy's the longest serving if you actually want to look at the Kennedy family uh, in terms of their, their like liberalism and their progressive, Teddy Kennedy blows away the rest by far. I mean, Teddy Kennedy is legitimately liberal, you know, make what you want of that. But Teddy Kennedy did far more to actually like, you know, do some good stuff than, than uh, anyone else, you know, did. Um, but, you know, it's just, it, it's, I think it's the importance that the left really has to be careful about embracing these myths I mean, if we're going to dig on the other side for their insanity, then, you know, you have to be be careful about that, you know. Um, and that's why, you know, I think just a personal view, like embracing like the Bernie Sanders campaign or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or the squad is problematic as well. You know, those are good people, you know, compared to the other, you know, you have 538, you know, mostly like crazy nuts. So those people definitely stand out. But at the same time, um, they're operating in a, in a structure that's not going to allow them to do much to, to you know, really help people. So uh, the, I think the, the reality is, is important here. Sorry. The one thing the one thing I want to just comment on the myth is that the, the part of the myth where there's this left liberal embrace of Kennedy is that they see him as someone who went against that system, like the, the yeah. you know, military industrial complex, the kind of political establishment at the corporate and, and that's completely not true. That's And that's how the Stone film, you know, frames it and portrays it, is that the military industrial complex working with the mob and the Miami Cubans took him out. But he was very much a creature of that system and of and all of that. And he like completely embraced it. Sanders and AOC are people who slightly go against it. And definitely like are like vocal, some more vocal than others about it. Ilhan Omar maybe is also in that camp. But like yeah. that's that's you know, and and if you look at how they kind of operate in there, they're complete outsiders. Kennedy was the complete insider. It's a very important distinction to make. And it's it's what, you know, I, I don't think Oliver Stone, I don't think he unintentionally got it wrong. I actually feel like he had some intention intention with some propaganda in there, and it's hugely problematic. It's like that film, like there's the there's the impact that Kennedy has had on generations. There's also, I would say, there's the impact that film has had on generations as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not typical that I mean this this you know it's not like scholars cite the film, but it really did inspire like legitimate books that absolved Kennedy. And <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I one of the um, actually it's the way I met. Noam Chomsky was he was writing a book about this and he read an article I written, but he, he wrote a book on this called Rethinking Camelot. Oh, okay. In <laughs> 1992, which I would definitely recommend. And I mean, I, I hate doing this, but actually my chapter in Masters of War is is also, I think, pretty detailed about it. But I mean, I think academically, we were among the first people to actually like go into the records and, and find this stuff out. Um, and it's 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 just problematic, I think. And it, it you know, it's why. 
the kind of the, the purpose of Green and Red podcast is to encourage people to get out and, and do stuff, to organize, to mobilize, to get involved in mutual aid, to get it because you can't sit around and hope that these national political figures are going to somehow fix it. I mean, we were very happy and still are that Donald Trump is on his way out slowly, you know, painstakingly, uh, getting every last dime he can. But scorched, um, scorched earth. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, um, I pretty sure you and I both had no illusions about pushing Biden to the left. When you think of, you know, and I, I was thinking about that today, you know, the whole kind of attack on defunding the police. That's what Kennedy was doing with the civil rights movement. You're going too fast. <clears throat> um, you know, Kennedy in Vietnam, Biden would have been all in on ZM. You know, Biden has already talked about uh, getting rid of Maduro. Uh, we'll see what he does with regard to Iran if he lifts the sanctions. But Biden is, you know, clearly uh, not in any way going to go easy. Uh, Biden was part of an administration that like destroyed Libya and um, has turned it into, you know, just a, an utterly uh, horrific place. Syria, Syria so, too. Syria too. So, you know, let's not delude ourselves. And and I think just like, let's not sit back and, and hope that somehow things are okay or they're going to be okay. Because that's what, you know, the kind of these myths and these fantasies and these chimera about people like JFK give us. And, and that's why you should listen to the Green and Red podcast, because you're not going to get this kind of history on hardcore history or, or these other kind of sites that like, you know, just want to kind of give you or you're not going to get it when they have Doris Kearns Goodwin and Michael Beschloss and Doug Brinkley and, you know, people like that as their historians of note. So you got to come here for the, the myth, myth, what do you call it? Myth busting? Myth busting. Myth busting. Mythbusters, high hashtag Mythbusters, that'll be us. All right. So folks, you've been listening to the Green and Red podcast at our almost end of the year here in 2020. Uh, if you want to support us, uh, you can do that in a couple of ways. You can actually become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast. If you go to our website, greenandredpodcast.org, you can hit the donate button for a one-time donation. Or, you know, the other thing you can do is like follow us on our social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and we're on YouTube. So please go to our YouTube channel and hit subscribe. You'll see our pretty faces. Uh, and then, you know, we really want to encourage everyone to like kind of just share our stuff around. We, th we think we are putting out some good content and we think more people need to be hearing it. And we need uh, we need you to help us like kind of put it out there. So um, from the Green and Red podcast, in December 2020. Uh, we'll be talking to you again soon and everybody stay safe and have a, a happy holiday. Thanks. <laughs>